The following Dharma talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota as part of the weekly Dharma series. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. Welcome everyone. Thanks for coming tonight. I've been giving a series of talks on uh, wisdom practice, really, and specifically how to cultivate wisdom, at least what we mean by wisdom in the Buddhist tradition, how to cultivate that in daily life. And I've talked about how to, what we can do to cultivate compassion and appreciative joy as a particular, as particular flavors of wisdom. And now I'm talking about equanimity, probably will continue for the next several weeks as another, you know, expression of wisdom. And uh, last week I gave, uh, offered four reflections. I want to go back through those, just four ways that we can, you know, images that we can use to uh, reorient the mind just any time during the day. But first I want to start with a quote from Sharon Salzberg's book. Uh, in her book, Loving Kindness, the Revolutionary Art of Happiness, which I've been sort of using over the last couple of months for the, the series of talks. She has a chapter on equanimity there. And in that chapter on equanimity near the end of the book, she defines it this way. She says, equanimity is the spacious stillness of the mind, a radiant calm that allows us to be present fully with all the different changing experience that constitute our world and our lives. And in that definition, there's something really important. You know, she, I like how she puts the word radiant and calm together, because radiant has this sort of energetic quality. So equanimity, this impartiality, it isn't, you know, normally, often we'll think of it in a passive way. Oh, whatever happens, happens. That's okay. But that's not really the flavor of equanimity we're trying to cultivate. There's a, an energetic presence, a real brightness in the mind, a full, vivid, intimate presence. But even though there's this full, bright, intimate presence, there's also this quality of uh, stillness or non-reactivity or balance. So it's not uh, the quality of indifference. It's really a shadow of what we'd call equanimity, or in Buddhism we call it a near enemy, because it can masquerade. We can think we're being equanimous, but actually we're indifferent, which is a kind of aversion, that we don't really care enough. Who cares what happens? Who cares if it's Barack Obama or John McCain or somebody else? Who cares? And throughout the series of talks I've been giving on the what in Buddhism we call the four Brahma-viharas, the divine abodes. These are the four emotions that the Buddha talked often about uh, as being really the background emotions that were mostly 
you know, we're not seeing or we're not, they're not active in the mind. But as our minds, as our hearts become less confused, less caught up with self-centered dramas, then these four emotions tend to predominate more. The emotion of loving kindness, of compassion, appreciative joy, and equanimity. And I really like talking about these four emotions as the reflection, the sort of active quality of wisdom. So often in Buddhism especially, we think of wisdom as the still, the stillness in the mind, this kind of being unflappable. But the way that still quality manifests in the world is in the form of loving kindness and compassion and appreciative joy and equanimity. And so the real proximate cause for equanimity to arise is when our mind or heart is in alignment with our present moment experience, then equanimity will arise. When we're resisting what's going on, what's happening in our body, what's coming up in our mind, when there's any kind of resistance or reactivity, then there's the absence of intimacy. And in that absence of intimacy, we don't have the fruit of equanimity. So it's interesting how these four things, loving kindness, compassion, appreciative joy, and equanimity, they're both a path that we cultivate but it's also the fruit of practicing. When we practice well, we have more, naturally, we have more loving kindness arising, compassion, joy, equanimity. But we can also intentionally cultivate those qualities by knowing how to open. So when we open to suffering, we ignite compassion. When we open to what's beautiful, we ignite joy. And if we want to ignite equanimity, we're actually we're practicing opening to the conditional nature of the present moment. And last week I talked about like how we we're seeing with really a broad or a vast view of things. So we see how the interrelatedness of all things. And equanimity flows from that. So here are the four images I offered last week that you can begin to work with. And I'll talk about each one, but in terms of like remembering, like so you can actually uh, bring it to mind during the week, you might just want to uh, focus on the image. And then once you have that image back in your mind, you can remember all the related instructions with that reflection. So the first image is you're sitting in a car, driving along, except you're not driving, someone else is driving. You're just sitting in the passenger seat. And, and our conventional view would be that I'm moving through space. I'm going from A to B. And uh, you know the car is working to get me from A to B. And then we just flip that view, and we just cultivate this understanding that everything is coming toward me. So can you just have that vision in your mind, that image? And not just when we're driving in the car, but just in general in life. So instead of thinking that I'm moving through my life from Monday to Tuesday to Wednesday, now to Thursday, 
that that the days, the events, the circumstances, they're naturally, ceaselessly flowing. And in a way, the sense of self, if you want to say, is like this porous uh, awareness. And experience is simply arriving on our doorstep, moment by moment, ceaselessly. But the awareness doesn't have to do anything to know what's going on. I don't have to do my life, get to the day, through the day, get to the next thing. But the awareness is just sort of, in a sense, and it's just a metaphor, the awareness is established here, and the events, the circumstances, the day, arrives on its own. It has its, it's doing its, doing it itself. So, from the point of view of awareness, it effortlessly arises. The next moment effortlessly comes, arises. We don't have to get to the next moment, get to the next thing. So you can even practice this particular reflection, like when you go home tonight. But instead of thinking that you're going to go home tonight, you can take this position of awareness and see that that everything just sort of happens. <clears throat> the experience of the body walking to the entranceway, that's just something that's being known here. And then walking outside is just another experience that's being known here getting in the car and driving home and all of that almost is like and again it's just a metaphor like a, you're watching a movie just receiving the experience <clears throat> and this is just a way to sort of reorient our view see normally we have the view of I'm a somebody who's got to get myself through life and there's a lot of efforting then we uh, that usual conventional view comes with a lot of efforting and reactivity because we feel like somehow we're controlling and making choices about how things unfold and making sure we really get to Thursday you know and get to the next thing but to just reorient and see how life when we say life we also mean our personality and our conditioning, that it all arises naturally and inevitably. Like, I don't need to think about what I'm going to say to my wife later after the program. I can just observe what I'm saying, observe how I'm responding, observe what I'm doing, and what she's doing, of course, too. So this is just one way to reflect on equanimity. And of course, these different reflections are not so different. They're just different tricks to help uh, to help reorient the mind from its sort of conventional view to a different view, having a different relationship with experience. So that the image to begin with here, just to help you remember it during the week, is just you're a passenger in a car driving through North Dakota, the endless got to go from all the way from the east side of North Dakota to the west side of North Dakota. If you've ever done that, you know, it's a very long, flat drive until you get to the western part of the state, at least. And you can just have that image in your mind of that you're not moving through those hundreds of miles, 
but the moment, the experience is coming on its own, just arriving on its own, without you having to do anything. Okay? So that's the first image. And, and another one related to this, um, this idea of how life, how experience arises ceaselessly and effortlessly. Like, can we stop? Can anybody here stop experiencing from ha- experience from happening? There is no way we can put a break on our lives, right? Everyone understand that? But yet, doesn't it seem, even though we know that that part, that half is true, like we can't stop it, still it feels so much like we have to do it. Isn't that funny? Like if we were really doing it, you would think we could stop doing it. Didn't that make sense? So this relates to the first reflection, but also the second one. And here it's less, not so much an image, although you, maybe you could create your own. It's just a phrase that a couple of my teachers used to use a lot. Anything can happen anytime. No expectations, no surprises. So you can just remember that phrase. Anything can happen anytime. No expectations, no surprises. So that's sort of an interesting way to reorient the mind. Because normally we're living moment by moment with the assumption that we know what's going to happen. We sort of know what's in the range of possibility. And then if something happens that's outside of that range, it's like we react because that's not what we expected. But instead we could just have the view, we could cultivate the view as a way of supporting the experience of equanimity that anything can happen anytime. I was leading a group like this a long time ago in the early 90s at Pathways. Some of you might know about Pathways in uh, Uptown area on Hennepin Avenue. It's a health crisis resource center. And I had a meditation group there for years on Friday evening. And one day I was doing my Friday afternoon group and somebody had a heart attack. I think it was a heart attack, I forget. But the person, you know, was there. First I thought the person might be falling asleep, and then the person passed out. And so we called 911. But, you know, we were all, it was very peaceful. People were meditating, it was really nice. You don't expect, like, you know, that to happen in that sort of setting, in this sort of setting. But anything can happen anytime. No expectations, no surprises. And so with this image or this particular reflection then, we're really, it's almost, if this is good for people you know, who like challenges. So if you like challenges, you can challenge yourself not to be surprised by anything. Like I got caught. I failed at this today. I went over, saw the new building. I don't know if anybody drove by the new building tonight. But that was not the color of stucco we chose. (laughs) So when my wife came home from work today, she goes, they're putting the new stucco up. This is the last coat. They've done several coats. And she goes, it's very yellow. (laughs) So I said, let's go see. (laughs) So we drove over there. And sure enough, that was not the color I remember choosing. And some of you were part of the choosing process, you know, where we looked at the different 
possibilities. And so, you know, I noticed my mind thinking, like, this can't be right. This shouldn't be happening, you know. We, we specifically signed a piece of paper with the color that we were going to do. But I had forgotten that anything can happen any time. No expectations, no surprises. I was surprised that somehow it could, we did it wrong. We, there was a mistake made. I don't know how that happened. It doesn't seem like it should have happened. But actually, we should always know that anything can happen any time. No expectations, no surprises. So I could have, if I had been really awake, really practicing well, as we drove up to the building, I also had my sunglasses on, which really made it yellow, which didn't occur to me until I lifted them. But it's still wrong. But it's not as wrong as I first thought in those first few seconds when I had my colored sunglasses on. I could have thought, of course, anything can happen anytime. That's... That could have been the first thought that arose in my mind. Or even when my wife said, you know, it's really yellow. It could have, the thought could have arisen in my mind. Well, anything can happen anytime. Things can go wrong. Things do go wrong. Anytime there is something that can happen, it can go any which way. And to, to be willing to live in this kind of world where anything can happen anytime, and that we can actually cultivate living without expectations. This is the direction of equanimity. Does it mean we don't have preferences? You know, I would have preferred that green stucco instead of the yellow stucco, and who knows, we still may get it. <laughs> I haven't heard back from David yet, so we'll see what the <clears throat> he says when he talks to the manager of the stucco company. But so it doesn't mean we don't have preferences. I clearly have a preference. But now, because I don't like suffering, I don't like being burdened by the thought that it shouldn't be this way. Because the thought, it shouldn't be this way, that's just suffering. And it has absolutely no effect on the color of the stucco. Not being angry about the current color, being reactive, doesn't do anything. All it does is constrict my heart, tighten my mind, make my body tight. So we can still have preferences, but we understand that what we want, what our preferences, what our preference is, is only one part of this interrelated world we live in. And there are many, many supporting causes and conditions. And what I want is just one relatively small thing in most cases. So who knows how it will turn out. But anything can happen, including getting the color we want. <laughs> so we'll see. So that was the second way to reflect on this. And another way that you might use for the second reflection, another just system to help remember it, so you can use that phrase, anything can happen anytime. It can be like a mantra. And you can just like chant it in your mind. Just keep bringing it up as you're doing your day, as you're doing your dishes, as you're working at work. Anything can happen anytime. Anything can happen anytime. And it just like uh, really lightens. That's the flavor of equanimity 
is the absence of reactivity. Because, you see, what mostly feeds reactivity is we think we have more control than we do. Like, if it were actually possible for us to be in full control of our life situation, we would work really hard at it, you know? But when we understand that anything can happen anytime, well, we still are willing to do our part because we have a role to play. But we understand that there are a lot of people playing their role and a lot of systems playing their role. And anything can happen anytime. So the Buddha taught about the eight vicissitudes of life. This is another system that can just help you remember this particular reflection. And he, he tells this great story, or there's this wonderful story in the suttas of a person that went to visit where the monks were staying, and uh, he walked up to one monk and asked him a question about the practice, about meditation, about the nature of the mind. But that monk was, you know, meditating, and so he didn't say anything. He just continued meditating, and the person got really angry and laughed. And then he came the next day and asked a different monk the same question. And that monk gave him a really long answer, went into great detail. And he got really angry at that monk for giving him such a long, complicated answer. So he stormed off again. And then the, he came the third day and he ran into Ananda, the Buddha's attendant. And Ananda had heard from the other two monks what had happened the previous two days. So Ananda thought, okay, I'll get this right, right? And so Ananda gave him a middle-length answer to his question. You know, not too much, but not too little. You know, succinct, to the point. And the guy stormed off again. He was really angry at Ananda. How could you treat such an important question so lightly in such a short way? He stormed off. So... The Ananda and the two other monks went to the Buddha and said, you know, what did we do wrong? <laughs> How come this didn't work out? And the Buddha said, maybe he said, anything can happen anytime. <laughs> no expectations, no surprises. He said something like that. He said that we live in this world where there will be gain and loss. For every human being, there will be gain and loss, there will be pleasure and pain, there will be fame and disrepute, there will be praise and blame. That's just how it is for anybody, including the Buddha. Right? People praise the Buddha, people blame the Buddha. So, so this is another way we can remember. So when you're going through your life, you could just be chanting these eight vicissitudes. So when you notice somebody treating you really nicely, you will say, this is praise, blame is not far behind. You know? <laughs> and then when someone's blaming you for something, you say, this is blame, and you know, you can welcome it, and soon there will be some praise. Pain, pleasure, gain, loss, fame, disrepute. And just to see how our lives and those lives around us, that people are swinging back and forth unavoidably to these things. Anything can happen anytime. And that this isn't some mistake. 
it's like we don't it's not a mistake when people blame us I mean maybe there are mistakes that are made of course but even when we don't make mistakes we'll get into situations where we're blamed for things or even when we don't do anything good we'll get a lot of praise or people will become famous I mean what did Tom Cruise do to be a mega celebrity I mean I don't know if He's probably not a terrible actor, but he doesn't seem to be an extraordinary actor or extraordinarily good-looking. I mean, he's just... who knows? But he has all this praise. I mean, a certain portion of the people on this planet think he's great. I was at the uh, Rainbow today, and I don't know if it was People magazine or one of those magazines that kind of noticed that he was there again. And it's just kind of interesting how this happens. Or how, you know, people just become sort of, you know, just get a lot of blame. They just, nobody likes them. Like Ralph Nader now, you know. I mean, Ralph Nader has had, I mean, from my point of view, has done a lot of good. But in a lot of circles now, he's kind of a joke. And uh, it's just sort of interesting. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> this guy who's devoted his life to, you know, really trying to take care of things. I'm sure he has an ego, and I'm sure he's not perfect. But he's kind of like the brunt of a lot of jokes right now. And it's just how it is. So maybe maybe he has this understanding, praise and blame, gain and loss, pleasure, pain, fame and disrepute. This is the very essence of human existence. This isn't a mistake. This is just how it is. And if we reflect on that, we we have a lot of equanimity coming up. We're not surprised. Because we know if we swing out here, it's just a matter of time before we swing over here in any one of those four pairs. Another image that I gave last week that we can work with is... um, is really focusing not so much on how things can arise in our lives and how they do inevitably arise in our lives ceaselessly and unavoidably, but to see how things pass away. And the images that I like is from a story that Joseph Goldstein tells about somebody throwing us out of an airplane and we're falling, you know, and we see our life falling away, you know, all the things that might come up in our mind as we're falling freaking out and then we realize after a few moments that there's nothing to hit there's no ground beneath us so this is just an image you can use the image of a free fall and just to to sort of as an image and then to reflect on the present moment and this is just uh, like a way to bring up the feeling of letting go like it's actually possible for us human beings to continually let go of whatever we see. See, the, the tendency of the mind whenever we see somebody or think something or have some sense experience, we, we cling to it. We kind of want to make something up about it. Oh, my knee hurts. I shouldn't be sitting this way. Or, and then we cling to that idea. We kind of grip the idea. Or it's about time I wrap up this talk, you know, so that there's time for discussion. And then I cling to that idea. So the mind has a tendency to fixate. So what we're doing 
is we're kind of uh, finding a way to remind the mind to just let go. So we're not stopping the mind, the heart, the body from doing whatever we're doing. We're just not gripping. So we do everything with a heart that lets go, with a mind that lets go. Sharon Salzberg has this great line. I wonder where I have it. Right here at the end. I'll just paraphrase it. She has this wonderful line that she says, this world, it's too much. It's not designed to hold on to, but it is perfectly designed to let go of. And you can, you know, like our lives, it's a hell realm if we try to hold on. But the way our life is, the way human existence is, it's really perfectly designed to let go of. And that's what this third strategy as a way of cultivating or cultivating isn't quite the right word. It's more of a remembering equanimity, remembering the possibility of equanimity. It's just remembering this possibility of free fall or of letting go. Really, any of these four strategies would be a sufficient practice for your whole life. We wouldn't really need another spiritual practice. We could take our whole life and do nothing more than cultivate letting go, letting go, letting go, letting go. So whatever thought arises, we just let go of it. It doesn't matter if the same thought arises in the next moment, because we'll just let go of it. I think I'm pretty hot, and we let go. No, no, really, and we let go. (laughs) Well, maybe I'm not. You know, maybe I'm just a fool thinking that I'm hot. And then we let go of that. And we can just, so no matter what comes up, in the mind, we can just let go, whatever judgment we have about somebody else. Or another teacher said of letting go just has this, uh, I think it was Thich Nhat Hanh, says, just tag on the phrase, maybe not so, at the end of any thought you ever have. Well, maybe not so. You know, the sky's blue today. Maybe not so. You know? Oh, I better get going. I have to be at Common Ground at 7.30. Maybe not so. So we don't, we don't know. And I notice sometimes when I talk to some Buddhist monks, and I'll say, well, I'll see you in November. And they'll remind me, well, you don't know. know? (laughs) So they say, you know, they want you to change it. If conditions unfold in a particular way, I'll see you in November. (laughs) Because that's actually more accurate, you know, not to speak as if something's going to happen, because we don't know. So that gets a little awkward. But in our own mind, we could practice not taking what we think, what we say, what's happening too seriously, just to immediately let go. This is true, but only true in this moment. So we can have a very strong opinion. I think John McCain is an okay candidate for president. We can have that strong opinion, but then we can let go because... Well, maybe not. You know, maybe he shouldn't be president. Maybe we can let go of that. So we don't have to get fixed, but it doesn't keep us from having opinions, but we're just letting go of them once we've had it. That's just my opinion right now. 
we'll see about the next moment what my opinion is. You know, it's just too hot in this room. Why didn't he put the air conditioning on? And then we can just let go of that. We don't have to build a life, use it to sort of establish the ego, that view, which is our tendency to elaborate or the, the Pali word is papancha, that mental proliferation where we sort of build a whole edifice of self on any particular view or thought or opinion that we have instead of just letting go, letting go, letting go. And this is so, this is very powerful, this letting go. Because again, remember I was saying that this uh, near enemy of equanimity is indifference. Kind of like a flat, nothing matters. But see, that's not really appropriate. To be equanimous does not mean we don't have emotions, even strong emotions. It just means that those emotions aren't landing anywhere. So like a wave of anger can arise, it blooms, but it doesn't land anywhere. It just, it just keeps moving. But if I take it personally, if I get, if like the thing with the stucco today, you know, I notice my mind really looking for somebody to blame. You know, I really, I wanted that strong reaction to land somewhere so I could get a foothold and really build a big problem you know, a big sense of self. I'm going to take care of this, or I'm, I'm not going to take care of this, and I'm going to feel really bad about it. I'm going to feel like the world isn't fair. You know, we work so hard to choose this color. All those, you know, committee meetings, and da-da-da-da-da, and then to end up getting the wrong color, you know, paying the community paid. You don't want to hear this. We paid, all of us, you know, who make this center happen, we paid. $35,000 or $36,000 for the stucco on that building. Called Darren, we should get the color we want. <laughs> so you can see what a huge edifice that can be. But instead, it, with awareness and with this remembering of letting go, the possibility of letting go, the anger can arise, but we don't have to, we don't have to create a, sort of a place for the anger to land. There's this uh, beautiful uh, line I like that sort of uh, put with Kuan Yin. Some of you know Kuan Yin is not really part of the Theravada Buddhist tradition. It comes out of Mahayana Buddhism and specifically Chinese Mahayana Buddhism. But it, we have a statue of Kuan Yin on the side table next to our community good wish book that people write in. Uh, names of people who might need some good wishes from people in the community. And uh, Kuan Yin is this archetype of compassion. In Tibetan Buddhism, it's Avalokiteshwara. And sometimes when this deity is drawn or painted, he has it's a male in the Tibetan system and then becomes a female in the Chinese system. But in the Tibetan system, sometimes it's depicted as having like, I don't know how many, but hundreds of sets of eyes. Maybe somebody knows. Anybody know? Lots of eyes, lots of hands to see all the suffering and to respond to all the suffering in the world. So, you know, we could, we could have that same sort of 
sense of sensitivity to notice all the unfairness, all the injustice, all the suffering, all the pain, loss in the world, and to and we can imagine getting really tight about it, like being responsible, wanting to take care of it. But this line that's attributed to Kuan Yin as an archetypal figure of compassion is, the winds of circumstance blow through emptiness. Whom can they harm? So this is a little, it's pointing in the same direction that I, I meant with these this strong emotions. The emotions arise, lust arises, anger arises, excitement arises, even wholesome emotions like kindness and patience. All of these emotions arise, but they arise in a sense in emptiness, meaning they don't need to land anywhere. We can be an emotional being. There's nothing wrong with being an emotional being. In fact, that's how it is. We are all emotional beings. We all have emotions. And the path is not about repressing our emotions. The path is about being unrestricted and free, free to be who we are. And we are emotional beings. But we don't need to turn our emotions into these sort of egoistic edifices that we then defend and kind of keep patching up, endlessly patching up, because that's who I am. This happened to me. This is what I want. Instead, we, we see how our emotions, they, it arises in this space of awareness. It arises in emptiness. Who can it harm? Anger is only a problem if it lands somewhere. But if we just feel angry without getting identified with it, attached to it, it just moves. It's just move a movement of energy, intense, and in the case of anger, unpleasant energy. In the case of like a loving kindness, it's a movement of pleasant energy. And that's all it is. And we don't need to let it land. So this is this reflection on letting go. And then the last reflection I mentioned last week is all beings are owners of their karma, heirs to the karma. People's happiness and unhappiness arise because of their actions, not because of my wishes. So this is something else we can, you can chant this in your mind as you're going through the day and you see different people arising, successful people, happy people, sad people. And you're just reflecting that beings, all beings, including ourselves, we are the natural, inevitable fruit of previous actions. A person's happiness or unhappiness, their success or lack of success, arises due to actions, not my wishes. And what this does, it isn't meaning that we shouldn't care. It actually allows us, it frees us up to really care about them. Because we understand with wisdom that how our lives unfold depend a lot on our actions, our intentional actions. That, that sort of is an invitation to take responsibility. But, but our love for people, our care about people, that's a relatively small part of what's unfolding. 
And so it, what it does, it it, uh, it helps us um, it helps us find this balance in the world where there's tremendous suffering. It's like we can be driving down the street and the car in front of us runs over a squirrel. Let's say it doesn't kill it. It just injures it, gravely injures it. So there we are. Now what are we going to do with that experience? So the first thing, what we want to be able to do is maintain a wholesome state of mind. Because suffering isn't going to help that injured squirrel. So the first thing we want to be able to understand is, I really care about that squirrel. And to be able to maintain that caring, we have to understand that that happening and the survival of this squirrel, that my role is relatively small. See, that really allows us to sort of stay intimate with the situation and to maybe pick up the squirrel and bring it to the Humane Society or to the, I don't know where you would bring a squirrel. Probably have to look on the internet to see if there's any place in the Twin Cities you can bring a injured squirrel. I'm sure there is, but I don't know. But the point is, like, uh, otherwise, we tend to freak out. Either by going into some denial, this is not my problem. This is the guy who hit the squirrel's problem. You know, I've got to get to work. Or freaking out the other way, getting tight the other way. You know, this is not fair. This shouldn't happen. Getting angry at the guy who hit the car. Angry at civilization for having cars. Which is another, just another constriction in the heart. But if we understand that things happen lawfully, this is another way to say it. Things happen lawfully. Things happen due to causes and conditions, not according to my wishes. I can have the wish that all beings are protected and safe, but things happen according to causes and conditions, not my wishes. So you could restate it that way. But, but in this particular reflection, we're appreciating the limitations. We are not in charge of the unfolding of the world. We're in this interrelated web, and this web is very large and vast. And that's just how it is. And the question is, are we willing to stay intimate with that? Or how can this heart stay intimate in this world where anything can happen anytime? And one possibility is to keep reminding ourselves about this truth. People's happiness, beings, happiness and unhappiness arises due to causes and conditions, not my wishes, not based upon my wishes for their happiness. Or I care about your well-being, but I understand that things arise due to causes and conditions, not my good wishes. So when we see our partners, or we see our family members, or see our colleagues, or our friends, we can just kind of be reflecting on this. That your well-being 
is arising due to certain causes and conditions, not the fact that I care about you, that I love you, that I wish well for you. And you see, that doesn't distance ourselves. What it does is it allows us to be really close. Because this is also true for us, too. Like we understand that how my life unfolds has very little to do with the fact that my wife cares about me or that some of you guys care about me. But that doesn't change the kind of conditioning I have in my mind or the particular circumstances that will arise in my life. No matter how much everybody cares about me. So I'll leave it here so we have some time to check in with each other about this really powerful practice of equanimity. Next week we'll talk more about reflecting on impermanence as a support for equanimity. But what comes to mind from the talk tonight or from your practice this last week or any questions you have about the practice? Tom. sharing that I think just it's just instructive to hear how that unfolded for you and uh, you know things have their own time and what we can do to support the kind of inevitable addressing of resentment because resentment is unfinished business and it's a real weight on our hearts whether we're conscious of it doesn't matter I mean just because we don't know we're suffering from all of our unfinished business doesn't mean we're not suffering from all of our unfinished business. So one thing that we can do to support the, the healing, that kind of healing, is to uh, just develop more sensitivity, like to have a more time, more periods of time where the mind is quiet. It's like a vacuum. When we're really 
still and quiet, like in a meditation period, or just a calm life, it's almost like a vacuum and all the unfinished business tends to percolate up more quickly, more obviously. We may not like that, but actually it's really useful if it comes to the surface, because then we see it. We see it that this needs to be addressed. And we may make mistakes in how we address it, like we may see it, know that it needs to be addressed, and so we address it by blaming the guy again, you know, re-energizing the whole resentment. But eventually we wake up because that hurts. When we do that, it hurts us. And so eventually we wake up and go, this hurts. This can't be right. It's like a form of self-torture. There's got to be another way. And eventually we stumble upon it. Whether we And then a spiritual path just allows us to more systematically stumble upon it. Stumble upon these moments of healing like you described, Tom. Mm-hmm. What else comes to mind? Yes. Is that Wendell? There was a question that somebody asked last week. Oh, yeah. I thought it was a good question, but I figured I'd come on to you, but I think I remember Yeah, I think it was Jerry. I remember Jerry asked it, but I don't remember what the question is. It's just like on the tip of my tongue, but... Do you remember, Rick? It's something about strong emotion. Being attached to strong emotion. I really like having this oh yeah, yeah. That, I think that was it. Yeah, yeah. And and it, I mean, it also relates to Tom's question. So what Rick was remembering, I think this is right. That Jerry was talking about. He kind of likes having strong emotions, and this is often comes up when we hear a talk or reflect on equanimity. We we kind of think, oh my God, I'm going to be this flat person, you know, where nothing really matters, and I don't have strong emotions. And it's true, we like strong emotions, but <clears throat> what, what often is going on in terms of our liking strong emotions is we like to feel real. And what we mean by that is the ego, the sense of self, likes to have the sense of being on solid ground. And when we have strong emotions, it allows this process to happen where we get identified with the strong emotions and we feel very real. Like when I, I often use the example of reading the news and getting a lot of self-righteous energy going, and I feel so real when I reflect about how stupid people are in the world, you know, politicians especially, doing dumb things, causing a lot of suffering. And I can feel very real. And all kinds of different, I have different ways that I kind of establish my ego, like thinking the world is so screwed up, I don't want to have anything to do with it, or feeling like I'm going to do something about this, but in either case, what's really going on is I'm uh, sort of using the strong emotion to sort of establish a sense of self. And then on some level, that's juicy. I, I feel safe because I know who I am finally. We have a place in the world. And the key to this basic pattern that we're all in, whether for us is it's about getting self-righteous or for some people it's about falling in love with the next thing, whether it's another person, or falling in love with the next kitchen gadget, or falling in love with the next cause. But we, we, we kind of whip up some passion, 
And then we get identified with the passion. So that's another way this pattern works for people. And the key here is we have to observe how that attachment to strong emotion hurts. The identification is a constriction on the heart, and it hurts. So any strong identification has to be seen as suffering. On the surface, it feels good, because we feel real. But we have to observe, we have to um, have like a kind of inner honesty and interest to see really what is that experience of certainty. Like, I really want this. There's a certainty there. They're really wrong. There's a certainty there. So whenever there's that strong identification or certainty, we have to go beyond the surface feeling that this feels good, because I'm right, or I have a position, a kind of a stance in the world. That feels good on the surface. But when we, when we are more subtle, the awareness is more subtle, we see how tight the heart is. And we see how, how uh, painful it is to have to defend that stance, that identification. And that how beautiful, how pleasant it is to be unencumbered by a particular stance. How nice it is to be a nobody. You know, to just, or to be a somebody that is arising and passing away in each moment, like I was saying earlier about letting go. We can have an opinion, but then we just let it fall away in the next moment. So we're not, we're not addicted to the sense of a, a solid stance, a solid somebody. And this is really important because this gets misunderstood a lot in, in terms of the Buddhist teachings about the non-self, anatta characteristic, which is one of the more subtle and important teachings the Buddha offered, how uh, you know this idea of being a self is really misunderstood, and it's at the core of our suffering. The Buddha's not saying that we don't have an existence. You know, he's not saying, you guys are just wrong if you don't actually exist. And we're kind of going, oh, seems like I exist, but maybe he's right. Maybe I don't exist. And it just kind of gets really weird. That's not what the Buddha is saying. He's saying that we're misperceiving our existence. We're projecting something onto our existence. Clearly, there's an existence happening. There's something happening here. So let's just call it an existence. right? And the problem, the Buddha says, is that we're projecting something onto this existence that's unnecessary. And what we're projecting onto this existence is this concept of self. We are projecting a center to this happening that is ourself, that is this existence. So there is something happening here, but we don't have to do this extra thing, which is projecting a center to this process or to this existence. It could just be this existence, whatever it actually is, without the mind, moment by moment, projecting a self, a center, onto our experience. And that's what we do generally with strong emotions, is we use the strong emotion, the intensity of experience, to support this inner uh, mental happening where we identify, we create a concept of somebody who owns this intense experience. But that is extra. We don't need to have a somebody who owns the intense experience. 
It can just be an intense experience of love, of anger, positive or negative emotion. And this is really points to the essence of equanimity. It's not about not having emotion or having conditioning that gets triggered. You know, we all have conditioning that gets triggered. It's about not getting identified with it. And we'll pick this up next week, but it's 9 o'clock, so we need to leave it here. Let's just take a few seconds so that we can let go of all the words, not feel like we have to hold on to things. It's nice to appreciate being here together and appreciate these wise and practical teachings that have been passed down generation by generation for so many centuries. And we're fortunate that we're able to connect with this collective wisdom and we can be inspired to develop it, to put it into practice, cultivate some wisdom and compassion as a way of taking care of our lives and taking care of all beings, however that might unfold. May we all be at ease, skillful, happy, peaceful, and a cause for happiness in the world. Thanks everyone for coming. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.